There are no surprises with God. God knows he is sovereign. He superintends all things, including the story that we're looking at today. You're going to find in your bulletins that not only do we have a handout to take some notes on with regard to this chapter that we're looking at, but also we have another handout as well that I'd like you to keep on your lap and we'll be using again next week as well. Uh, Years ago, I was lecturing at Wheaton College and asked to have Dr. James Engel join me, who was at that time the director of the Billy Graham Crusade, not Crusade, uh, Billy Graham Center. And he oversees so much of the work that was taking place in that setting for graduate students. And Dr. Engel has put together something that I've utilized through the years, particularly when I was involved in church planting, where we started churches in areas where evangelical churches were absent, lacking. And my approach was to use the principles that really are on this diagram that I presented in our fall body life update. That what you can see here is that people are on a spectrum spiritually. We can't just classify a person as saved or unsaved. Because on the spectrum of unbelief, there are varying points in which a person is open or closed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as on the other side of the equation, there are people who are at various points of growth and maturity in Jesus Christ. But our ultimate objective is to multiply disciples for Jesus. If you want a succinct visionary statement, our vision is to multiply disciples for Jesus. We don't look to the marketplace. We don't look to the businesses. We don't look to senior pastors and the likes or elder boards or deacon boards. We look to the scriptures And there you will be asking yourself the question, what is God's vision for his people? And what we find, even in today's study, is that his vision is for his people to be multiplying disciples for his glory. So I'd like you, as I'm working through this passage with you this morning, to try to figure out where is this Samaritan woman on this scale? And how does Jesus create a sense of movement to the point where there is realization that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, and immediately she becomes a multiplier, pointing other people to Jesus Christ? It's a fascinating story that I'd like to unpack for you. I'm going to have six movements here. You say, Gary, it's typically three, but I didn't speak last week, so I'm doubling it. Okay? And so we are going to look at six movements here. If you're watching Monday Night Football and they talk about moving the chains, this is what Jesus is doing here with the Samaritan woman. He is moving the chains. But what you've got to figure out when you get the ball is, am I at the five-yard line? Am I at the 30? Am I at the 40? And that will determine how you approach things as you try to create a conversationally engaging approach approach to lead people to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So that's the lengthy prelude, and in chapter 1, verse 4, I'd like to read a few verses for you. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, parenthesis, although Jesus himself did not baptize 
but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass, mark that phrase, had to. So he had to pass through Samaria, and he came, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, in parenthesis. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So we're going to be looking at these words and more as we're thinking how to move the chains for God's glory. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Thanking you, Father, for who you are. Thanking you for each one here. It's a great church. We We love this church, love your people. Praying for any visitors here today that they feel welcome, cared for. Questions they have, somehow, some way we can provide some answers for or get them to that place where they can get the perspectives that they need. The ultimate perspectives we need are found in your word, which is where we now turn. No matter what our life stages, and no matter what the events of this week have been, we now need to steady ourselves. We need to open up your word. We need to get our bearings. Find out how the eternal breaks into the temporal. How Jesus breaks into life. So, Father, we're praying again now in these minutes together that you warm these hearts of ours. Engage these minds of ours. And shape these wheels of ours. Come here to see Jesus. Him only. 
praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's 1993, and I was speaking at some churches in Colorado. And the particular church that I was speaking at on a given weekend, secretary seemed to know an awful lot about the organization known as the Navigators. Their headquarters are in Colorado Springs. And she seemed to know an awful lot about the founder of the Navigators, who had overseen follow-up work for the Billy Graham Crusades, Dawson Trotman. So as she was driving me to my motel, I was asking questions until it became increasingly clear that she knew Dawson Trotman so well because she had been his secretary. And so a whole new chapter of life opened up for me when it came to the whole matter of discipleship because one of the little booklets that I've treasured over the course of the years was written by Dawson Trotman, who's now with Jesus, and it's called Born to Reproduce. And there's a particular little story that he tells of a time in which he had, by God's grace, led a man, a sailor, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And this man was burdened to lead others to Christ, but wasn't quite sure how. We pick up on the story, and Trotman informs us that he found a number of men on his ship, but none of them would go all out for the Lord. They would go to church, but when it came right down to doing something for God, they were noncommittal. So after a month of frustration, he came to me and said, Dawson, I can't get any of these guys on the ship to get down to business. Trotman responds, I challenged him, you can't have two until you have one. Ask God to give you just one man, a man after your own heart, and start there. So he began to pray. Three months from the time that I had started to work with him, he had led a man to saving faith in Jesus Christ. This first sailor needed no prodding to do something for Christ. He loved the Lord, was willing to pay a price to produce. He worked with this new babe in Christ, and the two of them began to grow and spiritually reproduce. On that ship alone, 125 men found the Savior before it was sunk at Pearl Harbor. Today, men off that first battleship are on four continents of the world, For you see, the word spread from ship to ship so that when the Japanese struck at Pearl Harbor, there was a testimony being given on 50 ships of the U.S. fleet. All of which the result of the work that began with one man. Who's that one right now that God is laying on your heart? There is a one here in Samaria, and interestingly enough, we don't know her name, nor will we be told her name throughout this chapter. She's just simply dubbed as the Samaritan woman. 
maybe what God is doing is just fulfilling HIPAA laws and protecting us from further information. But what I see here unfolding in these verses is a moving of the chains, whereby what God is sovereignly superintending is taking this woman that we do not know to this very day, and she becomes a multiplier, so that countless others will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do now is to look at six movements with the angle scale as well in front of us, asking ourselves, how is Jesus moving this woman along to the point where not only she's trusted in Messiah, but she is introducing others who in turn will trust in Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now the first of the chain movements is found in verse 1 through 6. That is, Jesus models for you and for me here the evangelism of discipleship. I want you to note, first of all, the social setting. And ask yourself, what social settings do I naturally find myself in? And what social settings am I uncomfortable in? And thread these thoughts as we begin to work. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, pause. You will find elsewhere that Jesus had delegated the work of baptizing to his disciples, but here Jesus takes responsibility for it because he is supervising their work. You see, in the Matthew 28, 18 through 20 passage, the Great Commission, where you go into the world, make disciples of all people, ethnic groups. There is the word go, which literally means going, Then there is baptizing, and there's teaching, and these are three participles that simply support the main commanding verb, make disciples. But the word make here carries with it the idea of intentional responsibility, of taking somebody beneath that centerpiece, the threshold, in the negative realm, and moving the chains along until they're in the positive realm to the point where they are in turn making disciples. So now, Jesus is about to model it for you and for me. He left in verse 3 Judea and departed again for Galilee. And mark this in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were people who were not 100% true blue Jew. There was a mixture of blood. Their DNA had been impacted by other ethnic groups because in 722 B.C., the Assyrians had come along and conquered the ten northern tribes of Israel and then relocated back into this region. There were doctrinal differences, theological differences, cultural differences, spiritual differences. One preferred to worship on Mount Gerizim, the other in Jerusalem, and the two just did not seem to mix. What fascinates us here is that God has a, has a mandatory itinerary for the second member of the Trinity, he had to pass through Samaria 
even though if you pull a Bible atlas out, you would find that there were three options from getting from A to B. But God the Father had mandated that God the Son come through a region that ultimately in the book of Acts would allow for the rotal tilling of that territory to be prepared for the planting of the seed, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts, uttermost parts of the earth. And so now Jesus is breaking ground. He always gets ahead of his disciples. He doesn't lag behind, you see. And so he's prepping for what the disciples will eventually do, which we'll find next week when Philip is speaking and ministering collectively in Samaria and then individually to a man who is from Ethiopia. But you and I now say to ourselves, that means then there are going to be times where God is going to have me pass through very uncomfortable situations, very uncomfortable settings, to fulfill responsibilities in keeping with his vision for your life and mine. What's your Samaria? In verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, and fascinating, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. These people know their history, and they value their history. And so it is not an incidental statement here that Jesus positions himself in this field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and he's going to put himself at Jacob's well. In verse 6, Jacob's well was there. Mark what comes next. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, high noon. Mark that word, wearied. Some of the most powerful ministry opportunities will come when God has rerouted you, rerouted you, and you have a mandatory itinerary, and as a result, you are wearied from the journey of life. To the point where all you want to do is sit down, collect your thoughts. Your output has exceeded your input. Maybe that's where you're at right now this morning. God can use you. God specializes in weary people. My strength is found in the fact that that God, his grace, is sufficient to meet me at my point of need, you say to yourself. He was wearied after that second service a few months ago. Very combative on the phone through the years with me, but I love him to bits. He's a tough guy told you about we'll I'll take a phone call and he's in a bar somewhere somewhere in the United States he's in an argument trying to tell people about Jesus finally he says I'm going to call my pastor and so all of a sudden I'm on speakerphone in a bar 
telling guys there who are arguing with one another about Jesus. Though I'm not sure quite where he's at yet, spiritually. But he showed up in the past couple months, and at the end of a particular service, almost shouting at me, nose to nose, where is God? Put my hands on him. I said, stare at me. Look me directly in the eyes. He did. I said, I want you to know that off to one side here is a stage four cancer. Off to another side in this room is a woman paralyzed from an accident. The issue for them is not where, but who. They've come into the presence to see Jesus. They're not shaking fists at God. They're submitting their hearts to God. They're weary. They don't even know that they're evangelizing at this moment. But they are present. And they are being used by God. I say, do you remember Psalm 22, verse 1? I've quoted to you before. My God. My God. Accent upon the first word, not the second. The relational aspect. Why have you forsaken me? Quoted by Jesus on the cross in his most intense time of trial. He was still investing in God's word. In your weariness, consider the weariness of others who testify of God's word. If you're walking with Jesus and you're weary, but you want to be used by God, this is when you have impact. And Jesus is about to have impact as he sits by the well. So consider your social settings. The supermarket can be a social setting. Walking a dog is a social setting. Because there are divine encounters waiting to happen when you keep your eyes open to the settings that God has sovereignly placed you in, even in your moment of weariness. Let's move the chains. Because second of all, as Jesus models the evangelism of discipleship, I want you to notice then the common interest. A woman from Samaria, don't know her name, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, he takes initiative. Leaders take initiative. They're not passive. Now, what I want you to see here as this begins to unfold is that Jesus Christ is conversationally wise. Not everyone who is verbally expressive is conversationally wise. But there are not lateral movements here. This is forward movement. He's going to move the chains with a succinct statement, give me a drink. Mark that word give. It's going to keep reappearing, and he's going to flip it. 
apprentice. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, which is probably a good thing, because his disciples did not take well with Samaritans, as you can read about in Luke 9, where they basically wanted Jesus to nuke a particular Samaritan city for resisting his message. The Samaritan woman said to him, and notice now what he does as he moves the chains. He has created a sense of spiritual curiosity. You and I traffic with spiritually curious people grappling with the big issues of life. She's got a question. How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. Thus far, all she has for her framing of Jesus is, he's a Jew. He doesn't come right out and say, I'm Messiah. In fact, he allows her to start to articulate her view of him, but in a question. Now, wise evangelism within the full spectrum of discipleship creates a sense of spiritually induced questions rooted in a curiosity that there's got to be more to life than I've been able to absorb so far. Right now, she's got a question. Why, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, Parenthesis once again here, because what you and I see, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Curiosity. Notice the response. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, gift, he had just asked for her to give, Now he's using a commonplace water-at-the-well moment to flip it and start talking about the God who gives. He's brilliant. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Notice how John utilizes the word living. Life is, is a very central word in his, in his theological vocabulary. Fascinating. The word gospel is not found in the Gospel of John. But life is repeated. And living water is something which is articulated here for emphasis. But now what he has done is that he has created a sense of intellectual curiosity. What on earth is he talking about? Are you creating with your life curiosity? Years ago, a ship in distress off the Canadian coast. Fresh water supply, completely exhausted. Happened in a prior war. SOS sent out for fresh water. The reply came back immediately. Let your containers down. 
they had sailed into the fresh waters of the river St. Lawrence. This woman is finding herself in fresh waters. Thus far, whatever she had tried to sample had not met her needs. And Jesus now is using the value of common interests, common settings, common wording, but now has introduced a curiosity statement. He would have given you living water. There's that word given again. He began, give me a drink, and all of a sudden he's talking about the God who would have given you living water. He wants her to give him temporal water, but she needs to understand that God wants to give to her living water. And now what Jesus is doing is beginning to create a contrast in her mind between the temporal and the eternal. Temporal water, eternal water. And now you can see her leaning in, which is a phrase being used increasingly in business culture today. But notice thus far, her classification of Jesus is simply a Jew. How is it that you, a Jew, in verse 9, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? He has cultivated a question. Are you doing that in your relationships? There's a difference between verbally expressive and conversationally wise. Move the chains. There's a third movement now. And beginning in verse 11 down through verse 15, I want you to see how he has moved this conversation from the social setting aspects to the common interest matter of water, verses 7 through 10, through thirdly now, the critical questions of 11 through 15. He has introduced an idea that needs to be understood. Living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Question. Where do you get that living water? Question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Stop. You see how he's expanding her understanding of who he is? Stage one, she viewed him as a Jew, but now she's into stage two in her thought processes, and now he's someone greater than Jacob. She's beginning to get a sense that this is more than I bargained for. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Back to the word give, gave, gift. He gave us the well and drank from it himself. He had needs. As did his sons and his livestock. Not realizing that Jesus had so positioned him at this well so that he could utilize the historic Jacob as an indicator and a directional pointer towards Jesus. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, temporal, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, eternal. And yet he had said in verse 7, give me a drink. But now here in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. You see how he's moved things from the temporal to the eternal? Look for ways to move the chains. 
and look for ways to move things conversationally from the temporal to the eternal issues of life. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water willing up to eternal life. Look at the reaction. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. There's that word give. But didn't Jesus begin with this whole thing? Give me a drink. Verse 7, in the temporal sense. And now here's this woman who is being moving along the spectrum of discipleship. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water, which is significant because this woman has been wrestling with the fact that some things just don't last in life, as we'll see in a minute. Do you remember the story about the man lost in the desert? Just dying for a drink of water. Stumbled upon an old shack, looked about the place, found a little shade from the heat of the desert, sun, and as he looked around, he saw a pump about 15 feet away. It's an old, rusty water pump. He stumbled over to it, grabbed the handle, began to pump up and down, up and down, nothing. Disappointed, he steps back, and then he notices off to the side that there's this old jug. He looks at it, wipes away the dirt and dust, reads a message that says, quote, You have to prime the pump with all the water in this jug, my friend. P.S. Be sure you fill the jug again for others before you leave. Pops the cork out of the jug. Sure enough, there's water. Almost full of water. Suddenly he's faced with this decision. If he drank the water, he could live. But if he poured out all the water into the old rusty pump, maybe it would yield fresh, cool water from deep down in the well. All the water he needed. Water need, water need. He studies the options, as should people in our culture today. What should he do? Pour it out into that old pump, take a chance on fresh, cool water, or drink what was in the old jug and ignore its message? Are you ignoring the message? Should he waste all the water on the hopes of those flimsy instructions written? No, telling how long ago? Reluctantly, he poured all the water into the pump, and then he grabbed the handle, began to pump, squeak, squeak, nothing. More squeaks. A little bit begins to dribble out. Then a small stream. Finally, it gushes. To his relief, cool water poured out of the rusty pump. Fills the jug. Drank from it. Filled it another time. Drank again. Refreshed. You know what? Then he filled the jug for the next traveler. Filled it to the top. Popped the cork back on. Added this little note. 
Believe what it says. It works. If you're thirsty for the eternal, because you've been so for so long settling for the temporal, believe what this says. Works. You're moving the chains. You're looking at your supermarkets. You're looking at your walking the dog experiences. Really what you're doing is you're examining the various Jacob's wells of your life where people pass by. But you see, you have had your own Samaria experience. He had to pass through Samaria, you know. It's mandated. But he's wearied by the itinerary. Are you wearied by God's itinerary for your life? Are you still willing to minister despite? Take a seat at the well. Because you take into account the social settings that God has placed you in and all the various little opportunities to move things from the temporal to eternal, You take a walk with the dog, you begin to think about walk. You see somebody else who's taking a walk, and all of a sudden you can talk about walking with the Lord. I see a student comes in to a particular teaching hospital. He's got a Green Bay Packer coat on. I say, okay. It's a pre-med student checking out freight. I approach him and say, do you remember Aaron... Rogers saying R-E-L-A-X. Because he looks so weird from his studies. Relax. He smiles. We start talking. Because we're in a teaching hospital, and he's looking at this place because he's dreaming of going to medical school. From there, we begin to talk about why it is that people have a hard time finding peace. We begin to talk about medications that are provided for people to be able to find a sense of calm in this world. Conversation then moves on to the Middle East and why there's a lack of calm there. Until finally, I got to cut to the chase and ask him, how do you find calm in your life? Now, what we start with was a Green Bay Packer jacket. Move to psychiatry and medication headed off quickly to the Middle East, and then got personal. And you're connecting dots, you see, in your conversations in life. How do you connect dots? So you're moving the chains. The critical questions are being posed. And now, here comes, as you look at it very carefully, 16 through 24, a fourth movement, the narrowing of the focus. He's gotten done talking about living water, hasn't he? The woman has reached a point where she realizes she needs something more than the temporary of life. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And now he turns this thing over and it catches us off guard. 
but realize what Jesus is doing beneath the surface. Jesus said to her in verse 16, Go, call your husband, come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. And what you have said is true. Now, how does living water versus temporal water relate to what Jesus has just introduced to the conversation? He's conversationally wise. Just as the water he wanted initially when he said, Give me a drink was temporal, and the water she really longed for was living water, which is eternal. This woman has been so overwhelmed by the temporalness of life. She's gone through five husbands. She's on to now another relationship. And as far as she's concerned, all of life seems so temporal and so empty, and nothing seems fulfilling. She is exhausted. And what she needs to come to grips with, she needs a relationship which lasts. But she's got to accept the fact that what she has so far put herself into are relationships that haven't last, experiences which don't last, and all the issues of life that just simply leave her empty. And she needs someone. She needs something. She needs eternal to fill the eternal needs of that soul. He used another temporal experience in her life to point her to the eternal needs of her life. And that's what you do. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. No, you see, he's moving the chains. She started with, you're a Jew, then she's moved to, you're greater than Jacob, and now I perceive you're a prophet. You see the advancement? Dr. Engel would be proud of what's happening of this young lady at this point, because... She seems to be moving across the spectrum towards spiritual realization as you study the scale carefully. Notice the narrowing of the focus. She's about to broaden the playing field at this point. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountains, but you say that in Jerusalem's the place where people ought to worship. In other words, it seems as though he's getting a little personal. So she wants to start drawing out the distinctions between the Jews and the Samaritans and their aspects of worship matters. But Jesus keeps the focus, as should you. 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. Woman, remember the wedding in Cana of Galilee? Sense the endearment here? He cares. Use the same descriptive for his mother, you know. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And now he has introduced the exclusivity of the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he says this, and he says this in a setting that would sound very provocative. It comes from the Jews, uttered by one standing in Samaria. What fascinates me is that Jesus is very inclusive in his social contact 
and very exclusive in his doctrinal teaching. He's willing to reach out to a Samaritan woman while simultaneously maintaining the exclusive I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And this is how we respond to a culture that wants to talk about tolerance and inclusive and exclusive and all of that. Look at how Jesus managed that in this context. He maintains the exclusivity of the truth while he includes the Samaritan woman in the conversation. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And notice he utilizes the word truth. He's got life, he's got truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John keeps threading this, doesn't he? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He didn't say that at the beginning. You've got to know your starting point. When you're traveling to Milwaukee, watch how people are trying to figure out their on-ramps. Determine your spiritual on-ramp, which will vary from one person to another based upon where they might be in the full spectrum of things. He saves it for this moment now. And there is your fifth movement. Notice with me the revealed Messiah. And I want you to see here that the way he phrases it takes this woman back to the Old Testament, which the Samaritans would honor. Tell them, I am sent you. Hebrew word, Yahweh, Jehovah. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. He's linking now all those things that her forefather Jacob would embrace as he moves the chains and gets us now to this final point. Look very carefully. The disciples in verse 27 come back, and it's a good thing they've been away, or they would have interrupted this powerful conversation. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman, and here's irony, and John utilizes irony, the woman left her water jar. We've been talking about water this whole time, now she's left her water jar. She's fond of living water. And she went away into town and said to the people, Come see, which is the very usage of the phrasing that took place when Jesus began with bringing his disciples together. Come see, Philip would say to Nathaniel. A man who told me all that I ever did. And then she poses critical question, Can this be the Christ? Brilliant. They went out of the town, coming to him, pick it up at 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. 
For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And there's your sixth movement, the multiplying effect. He began with one. She goes out and tells others. And before long, we see people left and right coming to Jesus. It's not how it begins, it's where it ends. You start with one and let God do the work. As he did through Dawson Trotman. Until finally, they're able to say that today, men off that first battleship are on four continents, and the word spread from ship to ship, so that when the Japanese struck at Pearl Harbor, there was a testimony being given on 50 ships of the U.S. fleet. And it began with one. And it points to Jesus. Question. Are you moving the chains? Let's stand together. Father, I'm thanking you and praising you for each one here and in each of these services. You have given us a biblical vision to multiply disciples of Jesus for your glory. And so we don't take any setting we find ourselves in as off-limits. No matter where we're at, we're at Jacob's well. And we have an opportunity. The question is, who's the Samaritan now in our life today? Pray you'll use us for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.